Today, provide you with in-depth news and expert analysis, tell you the whole story and the bigger picture, bring you the news you want to know only on Today. Donald Trump makes a surprise visit to American troops in Iraq. Rwandan President Paul Kagame says the migration crisis is a creation of Europe. China delivers on commitment to international responsibilities with larger contributions to the UN, and China is to boost foreign investors' confidence with new draft law. You're listening to today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Zhao Ying. Coming up, we'll have an hour of world news and analysis. To hear this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World News Analysis. U.S. President Donald Trump has made a surprise visit to American troops in Iraq, his first journey to an active combat zone since he took office. The president, who was joined by First Lady Melania Trump, spent three hours on the ground with U.S. forces and met with the U.S. ambassador and commanders. The trip came days after U.S. Defense Secretary Jim Mattis quit over divisions about strategy in the region. Trump said that he had no plans at all to remove U.S. forces from Iraq while defending his decision to pull them out of Syria, adding that the U.S. cannot continue to be the policeman of the world. For more on this, I was earlier joined by Dr. Fana Haddad, research fellow with the Middle East Institute of National University of Singapore. Why is Donald Trump visiting the U.S. troops in Iraq now? Well, I mean, the, Trump's uh, visit to overseas troops is uh, long overdue. He's almost halfway through his presidency, and he has yet to visit uh, any U.S. troops in a, in a conflict zone. Um, there's also the matter of uh, reassuring. Uh, those who fear that U.S. policy in Iraq will follow uh, the course of U.S. policy in Syria. Uh, in other words, to reassure those who fear a U.S. troop withdrawal from Iraq. It's also to show solidarity with, with uh, uh, U.S. Uh, troops, given uh, Secretary of Defense Mattis' departure and recent controversies. Uh, finally, it's also, of course, a message to a domestic audience uh, to burnish his uh, uh, nationalist credentials. Um, and it's always good for a president to be seen with uh, the troops. Of course, the real controversy is uh, uh, with what happened with the uh, Iraqi, his Iraqi hosts, or rather, his the absence of his Iraqi hosts. Well, during his stay in Iraq, Trump has once again declared victory in the fight against ISIS by saying that we've knocked them out, we've knocked them silly. Is that true? Like, has ISIS been defeated as he claimed? ISIS has suffered a significant, a massive uh, a military defeat in uh, uh, over the past year or two. Um, they have lost their territorial state, their proto-state, their so-called caliphate is completely destroyed. Uh, their capabilities have been reduced. Uh, so defeat, yes, but the question is, is it a final defeat? Is it a definitive defeat? And on that front, I think anyone who, who even has a cursory understanding of the matter would say no, uh, that to portray this as a final and, and definitive defeat would be a mistake. And let us not forget that we have been here before. In 2008 to 2010, uh, there were proclamations of victory against ISIS's pre, uh, 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 predecessor, namely the Islamic State in Iraq. And it was pretty much the same uh, pattern whereby we had a ma massive uh, uh, military defeat of insurgent forces uh, followed by low-level insurgency, as is happening today. Today, ISIS it still exists. It is waging a low-level insurgency in rural parts of Iraq and their former strongholds, in the rural parts of their former strongholds. Uh, they are uh, severely weakened, but they have not gone. Um, the American troop withdrawal from Iraq in 2011 proved uh, to be premature. And we all know after 2011, the Islamic State in Iraq regenerated and grew and became ISIS. And we all know what happened then. Uh, there is a real risk that something similar could happen today if Iraqi leaders and if the United States get complacent and uh, assume that the uh, victory that was uh, the hard-earned victory uh, over ISIS in the last two years uh, to assume this to be uh, definitive and final um, because there's still a lot of work to go, even on the kinetic level, on the military level. As I said, there's an insurgency ongoing in Iraq and in Syria as well. 
the American troop withdrawal from uh, Syria will have uh, uh, consequences on that front. So the president's remarks are inaccurate. Yeah, but Trump is obviously declaring an end to what he called the United States' role as a global policeman,、uh, because he said we don't want to be taken advantage of anymore by countries that use us and use our incredible military to protect them, and they don't pay for it, and they are going to have to. What do you make of those comments? Indeed,、uh, I mean, he, he, I mean, this is this has been his line since before he became president. He's consistent on this uh, uh, position. Uh, I don't think、uh, it's something that he will be able to implement in full. Now, in part, I think that this position also reflects the realities on the ground.、Uh, America no longer has the ability uh, to uh, act as the global policeman.、Uh, this is not the、uh, 1990s anymore.、Uh, it's less of a unipolar world than it used to be. So, in several regards, Trump's position is reflective of reality. Uh, that America cannot、uh, play the role that some expected or wanted to play across the globe. Having said that,、um, I, I don't think that the United States will be able to adopt a purely isolationist role and to avoid overseas engagements and avoid the policeman role in certain uh, 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 places. I think there are some policy priorities and strategic priorities that will. Force,、um, or rather, that will fly in the face of Trump's uh, uh, ambition or, or Trump's、uh, w- w- wish to withdraw、uh, the United States from that policeman role. And again, we can look at the、uh, 2011 withdrawal from Iraq as an example.、Uh, here was a president, President Obama, who wanted to to wind down America's role in the Middle East, withdrew from Iraq. Three years later, they were back in force. Um, so I don't see this as being again not not a definitive withdrawal from the policeman role, but as I said, realities, global realities, are forcing a recalibration of. America's place uh, uh, in in the international in international affairs. Yes, talking about the U.S. role in the international affairs, some critics say that、uh, Donald Trump is ending what's called the American exceptionalism. Because in contrast to his predecessors, Donald Trump has been talking about his country as a self-interested state whose purpose is just to survive and to prosper, which is no different than any other countries. Do you think that's really the case? Uh, well, I have a rather cynical view about this. I I, I don't think、uh, I think the only thing exceptional about the United States is their is their uh, 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 military and cultural and economic power.、Uh, otherwise, I think it's always been a self-interested state whose purpose is to survive and prosper. I mean, this is all states, and the American、uh, the the United States is no different.、Uh, what is different about、uh, the Trump presidency is just how blatantly、uh, this has been、uh, undertaken. I think the American role in in,、uh, in international affairs has not changed significantly in terms of the principles animating it.、Uh, if we put aside the hackneyed and tired old rhetoric of uh, uh, American pursuit of、uh, support of democracy and all of this,、uh, the reality is America is an imperial power and it is a self-interested self-interested state like any state. And it has been pursuing its strategic interests, often at the expense of their professed、uh, principles and at the expense of their so-called values.、Uh, I think this this has been much more rhetoric than reality. The matter of values and principles. So, in that regard, I don't think Trump is doing anything exceptional, other than、uh, being a lot clumsier about it and being、uh, and not 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 not、uh, trying to hide it or not trying to. Uh, uh, cover it in in the the rhetoric of human rights and, and democracy. You mean there's no American exceptionalism at all, and Trump is just ending the hypocrisy of his、um, predecessors. In, in in a way, yes. As I said, what is exceptional about America is the 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 economic and and cultural and、uh, military power of the United States, and the central role that it played. In the what was、uh, called the uh, liberal uh, international、uh, the liberal international order, now uh, uh, does that make it exceptional in the sense that it's not pursuing uh, uh, its own interest? Of course not. I mean, the,、uh, the, 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 like any other state, the United States has pursued its strategic interests,、uh, and、uh, there are many examples where this has uh, 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 flatly flown in the face of、uh, their professed. 
uh, values and principles. Sometimes mm-hmm. these get shelved. Well, another thing is that it is reported that Trump was supposed to meet with the Iraqi Prime Minister during the visit, but the meeting was cancelled over disagreements over how it would be conducted. I mean, that sounds a little bit strange. What happened? I mean, let's assume let's assume that the story that has been put out is the uh, reality. I mean, this is the only only version we have that they wanted to meet, and and there's no reason not to believe it. By the way, mm-hmm. uh, Trump arrives in in Iraq, uh, informs the Iraqis, the Americans inform the Iraqis beforehand, uh, but Trump insists on meeting in the Assad Air Base, uh, which is where the American troops are in the western desert of Iraq. Naturally, the prime minister needs to have the meeting take place in the capital. This is a head of state visiting Iraq. Uh, The meeting should take place in the capital as opposed to the prime minister going to a base in the desert. Trump refuses. I can believe that story. Uh, What this uh, highlights, though, is, uh, beg your pardon, Donald Trump's contempt for his Iraqi hosts, or rather non-hosts. I think it it shows uh, how he views diplomatic protocol. I think it's also a contempt for diplomatic protocol uh, and a contempt for Iraq. It has been very unpopular in Iraq. There has been a a big backlash on Iraqi social media, and it has placed Iraq's political uh, elites in a very difficult position. And finally, it has also allowed anti-American Iraqi actors, pro-Iranian Iraqi political actors to use this against the United States. Uh, some even threatening uh, violence, though I, I don't I think that's just uh, for show. That's Dr. Fanah Haddad, a research fellow with the Middle East Institute of National University of Singapore. Coming up, Rwandan President Paul Kagame says the migration crisis is a creation of Europe. You're listening to Today. Stay with us. What matters to China increasingly matters to the world. Keep up to date with the latest news and events about the Middle Kingdom with the China Plus app. Up-to-the-minute reports, live streaming audio, insightful opinion on everything China-related, facts, figures, and language learning resources at your fingertips. Everything in focus, all in one place. Search for China Plus in the App Store or Google Play. Welcome back. You're listening to Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Rwandan President Paul Kagame, who currently chairs the African Union, has suggested that Europe's failed policies in Africa are the drivers of the immigration crisis hitting the European continent. Kagame says billions in European investment in Africa has failed to create business opportunities. He added that he admires China's engagement with Africa and understands limitations when it comes to avoiding too much debt. For more on this, we are now joined in the studio by our current affairs commentator, Xu Chindo. Chindo, good to have you here. Glad to be here. Um, so in the interview with an Austrian newspaper, President Kagame talked about European Union's Africa policy and mostly the problems of the policy. What went wrong, according to Kagame, in particular, over the the migration crisis? Obviously, in terms of the failure of European um, Union's policy uh, to Africa, one of the highlights is the migration crisis. Uh, We know um, the majority of those refugees, you know, uh, come from North African countries. Uh, Some of them might be from Middle Eastern countries, but mostly African countries. Why? are those people fleeing their hometown, their home country, and uh, moving toward European countries. So according to President uh, you know, um, Paul Kagame, it's a failure of the European policy in Africa. I think it referred to the, um, the failure to help or to um, you know, uh, stimulate African countries to develop successfully their economy. If there are a strong economy, if there are jobs, if there are opportunities, if there is a you know, decent living standard, no person, I mean, no people will risk their lives uh, over the seas and to reach the shores of the European countries. We know what happened to uh, quite a number of people, you know, got killed or injured or, you know, end up in nowhere. Uh, So that's a journey of risks, a journey even of life-threatening risks. But people uh, still choose to take that risk. Why? Because in their own country, there's um, um, a huge word like depretation. 
will somehow force people to leave. And one of the destination is European countries because, you know, partly European countries always advocate how perfect their democracies are or their economies are, and uh, you know how often the lecturing, uh, the lecture the African countries for whatever reasons, right, uh, lack of democracy or for uh, being dictators, for being. Um, you know, say uh, poor economic management, things like that. So he's uh, very frank. He basically said what he, I guess,、uh, he has in his mind. Well, Kagame also mentioned that、uh, the Europeans are starting to change their African policy. Why are they doing this, and how? Interesting. Their change of policy not because of.、Uh, Migration crisis, you know, I would call it like a refugee crisis. In the migration crisis, sounds like you know those people are somehow,、uh, you know, in a state of changing, like finding a new job or finding a new opportunity. No, they are basically refugees. They are desperate in need of help, but uh, often um, they are rejected by some of the European countries over there. I think the European countries they are changing their policy somehow because of the Chinese presence or growing Chinese presence in African countries, investment and trade and investment、uh, from China between China and African countries. So that has drawn the attention, I would say, of the international community, including European countries over there.、Um, Then you know, if you look at one of the latest、uh, comments from a、uh, European leader, that is Austrian Chancellor、uh, Sebastian Kurz, he basically said that、uh, Europe must not leave the African continent to China. You know, like one commentator,、um, even from the United States, he personally said, like I've quote, I often find there are weird paternalistic overtones at events like this. That's at an event organized by President Kagame and Austrian Chancellor. You know, the, the Austrian Chancellor made that public, like somehow African continent should not be left to the hand, the Chinese hands. You know, that's the attitudes they treat African countries.、Uh, it's like they are still the colonizer.、Uh, in the African continent, they are not independent sovereign nations. Somehow, they could be snapped by one country or another. So there is a lack of respect. There is a big problem over there. It's their own problem. Somehow, I find it they are still,、uh, you know, failing to figure out what went wrong. And of course, the other issues I would say are probably related to the migration,、uh, the refugee crisis there.、Uh, if you look at the uh, numbers, uh, say you know Africa will become、uh, the continent with the largest、uh, population. Uh, say the population will double by 2050, according to、uh, President Kagame. For that reason alone, many people might push their way into Europe in the coming years if the African economies remains more or less the same. If there's no development, if there's no economic growth, if there's still a lack of opportunities for young people,、uh, so I think that reasons that elements put together. Probably forcing a change of somehow not attitudes, but at least policy-wise. Yes, and actually, when people talk about investment in Africa, they unavoidably will touch upon Chinese investment in the African continent because China is one of the largest investors. How would you compare the investment practices between China and Europe or the West in general? Well, in general, at least you know、uh, from the impression、uh, that is,、uh, you know, Western countries, European countries included, they tend to、uh, somehow like ignore Africa or lecturing Africa on democracy or rule of law of、uh, you know on a range of topics. What's worse, remember, not long ago,、uh, like President Trump basically, you know, like what he he has done is you know, calling African countries as. You know, like shithole countries. This is the, the real attitudes toward African countries. I think that's a big problem. And secondly, of course, before investment, I think it's really the respect is related to the first.、Uh, I mean, attitudes issue.、Um, you know, whether you treat African countries in an equal manner, whether you treat them with dignity, whether you you know treat them with respect. 
colonization, uh, colonialism is gone and gone forever, I think people should come back to the reality and respect them as individual sovereign nations. And if you provide one example, like, you know, Western, uh, you know, international community, mostly developed countries, when it provides economic assistance to uh, the African countries, they often uh, lay some conditions or preconditions on those assistance. If you receive this assistance, you have to do this, and you should not do that. Is this respect? Is this, you know, being done in an equal manner? Obviously not. Uh, if you respect them and leave them alone, they will make their own decisions. On investment front, I would say, if you look at the Chinese investment, it's mostly, uh, say, industries, infrastructure. That's uh, two of the three areas uh, President Kagame uh, uh, is, has been advocating for investment, actually. He also mentioned about education. Um, but uh, the impression is like Western uh, countries tend to focus more on the political side, like oh, on the building of democracy, whether there's press freedom, whether it's human rights, whether there's NGO, things like that. But uh, when it comes to people's living standard, when it people, uh, comes to people's livelihood, the economic op- opportunities, jobs, uh, I don't think that's, uh, they are doing enough. Well, and we know the issue of debt in a couple of African countries have caught the attention of international media and some point finger at China. How fair or unfair is that? Well, let me quote President Kagame here. You know, he said, China is active in Rwanda, but not in an inappropriate way. Uh, so obviously, for many African countries, the Chinese involvement is a positive development. They don't see that as a problem. Of course, uh, secondly, it's really about the African countries when they are dealing with either China, the United States, or any European countries. It's they, you know, you have to let them to be independent and make their own decisions. Uh, in the decision-making process, sometimes they make wise decisions. Sometimes the decisions probably is not well-made. Yes, there are problems, uh, even with the Chinese investment. But that's natural, I would say. That's part of the reality in every part of the world. So there's, that's not a problem. I think what uh, the, the, the Ch- uh, Chinese side has done um, in a wise, uh, you know, wisely uh, is being that you, know, you listen to the African nations, what they need, what they are expecting, and in what way uh, you can be helpful. Uh, respect them uh, instead of like imposing either your political system, democracy, human rights, or whatever on them, whether you like it or not, or provides economic assistance with all kinds of st- political strings. I don't think, you know, over the past decades, few decades, obviously, that's not working. Well, there's a suggestion that Rwanda learns from Singapore. But, well, we know that there's obvious similarities between the two countries because they are both small countries, lack of natural resources, but strongly independent in terms of diplomacy. But Kagame says Rwanda has not sought to copy any other country. What does that mean? I think obviously he admits like uh, Rwanda has been uh, looking uh, toward Singapore uh, to borrow some of their experience, how they manage their country, how they govern their, uh, govern their country. Uh, Rwanda actually has also been looking uh, toward China to learn what China has done, uh, a country with such a large population. Uh, yet um, China has been successfully uh, reducing the poverty. Uh, you see like uh, about 800 million people being lifted out of poverty over the past four decades. That's uh, a feat, I would say, unregistered in human history. Uh, so um, I think there's inspiration from China's uh, in development. That is, like, if China can do this, why can't Rwanda? Why can't any other uh, Europe, uh, African countries? And also, I think what he refers to is there's no single model, uh, there's no fixed model that suits uh, all countries' development. Uh, basically, you have to look at your own uh, resources, what you have, what you have not, probably, and uh, what's your strength, what's your weakness, and then uh, give full uh, play of your strength and uh, probably uh, do something about your weakness so you can uh, develop your country in a proper way. And he he was also challenged over the concept of democracy. How does he see what is a proper model for a country to develop itself? 
Uh, as I said, like you know, he probably sees like you know, uh, for Rwanda, it has its own uh, development. Uh, you know, he talked about uh, the future development of their plans for this country. You know, twenty twenty, twenty fifty. Uh, so different plans. He look at uh, some of the very important sector, for example, tourism, IT, energy, uh, because tourism, this country is with uh, rich resources in that respect. IT, interestingly, Rwanda as a small country is very strong uh, in terms of IT. Compared with other uh, African countries, they are looking at building this country into a hub uh, for African continent in terms of IT technology. So that's very ambitious. That's a uh, good use of obviously your human resources, right? That's about uh, development. You have to find a way um, that's uh, for uh, development based on your own conditions or national conditions. In terms of the you know the democracy, he basically is very uh, much fed up with this idea of uh, you know European democracy basically in his own words the hypocrisy of Europeans is astounding he said that you know European democracy is not really working because there are so many problems if it's a failure why should African countries copy that uh, that's his idea okay thank you Xu Chindo our current affairs commentator for joining us this evening you're listening to today we'll be back in a minute In-depth analysis, valuable insights, expert views, presented by an award-winning team. Today, keeping you well-informed, up-to-date, and ahead of the news. You're listening to Today, I'm Zhao Ying. Now is Global Survey, where we look at what's happening around the world. Joining me in the studio is my colleague, Patrick Flannery. We begin in Asia, where the man believed to have attacked the Chinese consulate in Pakistan last month has been killed. Tens of thousands of people will gather for Cambodia's three-day celebration, marking the 20th anniversary of the end of civil war. In Oceania, a heat wave is threatening Australians, with temperatures 14 degrees Celsius higher than average. Staying in the country, the world's largest floating liquefied natural gas platform has started production. In Africa, nine Rwandan officials no longer face charges related to the 1994 death of the country's president, which triggered genocide. And Qatar is airlifting armored vehicles to Mali in an effort to help confront regional terrorism. Turning to the Middle East, in Afghanistan, next year's presidential election has been postponed by three months. In Egypt, two former leaders came face-to-face in court with overthrown President Hosni Mubarak testifying against the Muslim Brotherhood's Mohamed Morsi, who was jailed following the Arab Spring movement. In Europe, two million people have signed a petition pushing to sue the French government over what protesters call inaction on climate change. Austrian police say they've linked a recent deadly gunfight in Vienna to Balkan mafia families. Looking to Latin America, an Argentine woman seized in the 1980s by people traffickers has been reunited with her family in a joint operation by Argentine and Bolivian police. Nicaraguan police shut down a TV network and arrested the owner, saying he was instigating hate and violence. And finally, in North America, the Department of Homeland Security says it will improve its treatment of migrant children held in cages at the Mexican border after a second child died. This year, more than half of the U.S. states passed gun control measures, marking what advocates call a seismic shift for the movement. Thank you, Patrick. That's the Global Headlines survey for today. The Chinese Navy began escort missions in the Gulf of Aden and the waters of Somalia in December 2008. In the past 10 years, the Chinese Navy has sent out 26,000 officers and soldiers, escorted 6,595 ships, and successfully rescued or aided more than 60 Chinese and foreign ships. Beyond the escort missions in the Gulf of Aden, China will become the second largest contributor to UN budget starting next year, surpassing Japan. Meanwhile, China will contribute to the second will continue to be the second largest contributor to the UN peacekeeping budget for 2019 to 2021. For more on this, we're now joined on the line by Victor Gao, Vice President of Center for China and Globalization. Good evening, Victor. Good evening. Well, we know it's been 10 years since China started to send Navy forces to the Gulf of Aden and waters of Somalia. So looking back a little bit, why did China decide to participate in the missions in 2008? The uh, Chinese flotillas, altogether, 31 of them over the past 10 years, uh, have been operating 
in the uh, offshore area of Somalia to escort commercial ships for the last 10 years. And this operation has been very successful and has won national acclaims in China as well as international acclaims. And the reason is very obvious. Ten years ago, piracy was rampant in the offshore area of Somalia, uh, reaching sometimes uh, almost one or 2,000 nautical miles away from the shore of Somalia, plaguing commercial shipping and uh, wreaking havoc for international shipping. And China is one of the countries which decided to send naval ships to escort commercial shipping. And for China's case, it has been very consistent over the past 10 years. Uh, More or less, they rotate every three months or more. And for the past 10 years, altogether, as I mentioned, 31 flotillas have been rotated. Uh, One flotilla, normally comprised of three naval ships, would sail in the offshore area of Somalia and being rotated. And this really is also a severe test to the capabilities of the Chinese Navy because before the uh, operations offshore from the Somalia uh, coastline, the Chinese naval, naval ships never ventured that far. They were more or less coastal shipping, and they operate very uh, close to the Chinese coastline, normally in the uh, seas uh, off coast from the Chinese coastline. So the Somalia operation of the uh, offshore Somalia operation is the first naval operation of China, far away from China itself, in international waters, and in many cases in close cooperation with naval ships of other countries. So we are very happy that the Chinese naval operations in that particular part of the ocean has been so successful over the past 10 years. Mm-hmm. And it's said that Chinese Navy has witnessed fast development over these 10 years. So could you please highlight some of the developments in particular in comparison with 10 years ago? Oh, definitely. I think one major transformation of the Chinese Navy is uh, over the past 10-year period, uh, it's uh, reflected in several ways. One is that the Chinese uh, naval capacities have increased and improved significantly. China has been the country which has uh, developed and built probably uh, more naval ships in uh, a short period of time compared with any other country in the world. And in terms of the capabilities of these naval ships, they have been significantly enhanced. As I mentioned, the Chinese Navy has developed from a coastal defense force to an international naval force which can reach any corner in the world. And further, for example, China now has the first uh, aircraft carrier, the Liaoning aircraft carrier, and uh, the second uh, aircraft carrier, which is the first uh, nationally built uh, aircraft carrier, is being built and tested as we speak. And I think according to already published information, China probably will own at least four aircraft carriers eventually, if no more. And uh, this added to the capabilities of the Chinese Navy significantly further, Let me emphasize, the Chinese Navy over the past 10 years has increased their international cooperation significantly with many countries in the world. They not only paid many port visits to many countries in different parts of the world, they have also received uh, visits by other navies from other countries very frequently. And I think such international cooperation between the Chinese Navy and foreign countries' navies would increase understanding, but also contribute to goodwill and contribute to avoiding any miscalculation or misjudgment or any flaring up of tension and conflict between different countries. 
Well, as we know, China、um, in 2001, China struggled to evacuate its people in a hurry from Libya as war was imminent, and it suffered a great deal economically from its investment in that country. So, how necessary is it for China to grow its navy forces to protect its interests, especially taking into account the Belt and Road Initiative? Definitely, China by now is already the second largest economy. If we use the official exchange rate as the benchmark, but the largest economy, if we use purchasing power parity as the benchmark, and China is the largest manufacturing country, the largest uh, uh, consumer market in the world, and China is the largest trading partner with more than 130 countries in the world. In a sense. The Chinese economic and trading interests reach、uh, every corner in the world, and together with your、uh, burgeoning and increasing economic influence, you need to have、uh, corresponding and commensurate、uh, military power to protect your legitimate economic and trading interests. Therefore, I think the Chinese naval development over the past ten years,、uh, in a sense. Is in、uh, relation to the increasing size of the Chinese economy and the increasing influence of the Chinese trading practices, and I think they more or less serve as a peaceful、uh, purpose to protect the legitimate interest of the Chinese economic operations. But also, I think, as you mentioned, they play an important、uh, role. In evacuating Chinese nationals in times of crisis, for example, the evacuation from Yemen, when、uh, it suffered、uh, great turmoil over there, and、uh, going forward, I think they will also contribute to、uh, other international engagements, including, for example, peacekeeping、uh, in different parts of the world, and also disaster relief, for example,、uh, whenever. Uh, major earthquake or tsunami or hurricanes happen in different parts of the world, and the、uh, Chinese naval、uh, medical ships have been engaged in such international humanitarian operations in different parts of the world. And I would not be surprised that they will、uh, be increasingly participating in such international humanitarian operations in the future. And also, we know China is also going to surpass Japan to become the second largest contributor to the UN in 2019. What kind of message does that send from Beijing?、Uh, this actually is not、uh, surprising. I used to work with the United Nations Secretariat in New York City uh, back uh, at the end of the 1980s and beginning、um, back at the 1980s, and、uh, at that time, Japan definitely. Was the second largest contributor to the UN uh, budget, uh, but then at that time the、uh, Japanese economy、uh, was much larger than the Chinese economy. But now, if we look at the comparison between China and Japan, the Chinese economy is almost three times as big as that of Japan. So I think it's not surprising that China need to and is contributing more to the United Nations budget. Than Japan、uh, is doing.、Uh, however, also allow me to emphasize that Japan has been very actively participating in United Nations、uh, matters and uh, has uh, consistently been, until this recent development, the, the second largest、uh, contributor to UN budget. And we need to、uh, thank Japan for its consistent and continued、uh, support. For the UN operations, and we hope Japan will continue to do so in the future. Even now, its ranking、uh, has been surpassed by China, and I hope China will continue to do the right thing, not only in terms of providing larger contribution to the UN budget, but also in terms of providing peacekeeping forces. And China is the largest provider of peacekeeping forces, and as you mentioned, the. Second largest contributor to United Nations peacekeeping budget. So all this is moving in the right way, and uh, hopefully uh, more countries will give recognition to the important role that the United Nations playing in the world today, rather than, for example, refusing to pay their 
contribution to the United Nations and has been running afoul in terms of their obligations under the United Nations Charter. Thank you, Victor Gao, Vice President of Center for China and Globalization. China has begun reviewing a draft law which can be seen as a signal to fulfill the country's promise to further open up its financial market, strengthen protection for foreign investment, and give foreign companies greater access to the world's second-largest economy. The new draft law on foreign investment, released by the Standing Committee of the National People's Congress, is expected to combine the country's three foreign investment laws to promote and protect foreign investment. The draft is to be seen as a way to attract foreign investors to the Chinese market by streamlining the rules governing foreign investment. For more on this, my colleague Zhao Yan earlier had a talk with John Gon, professor with University of International Business and Economics, and Michael Powers, Zurich Insurance Group professor of risk and finance at Tsinghua University. First, uh, uh, Michael, a draft law on foreign investment goes up for review, and China currently has three laws to respectively regulate Chinese foreign equity uh, joint venture, non-equity joint venture, and also the wholly foreign-owned businesses. So why does China need a new unified law on foreign investment? I think that China needs a new law because it needs to streamline um, the, the old laws. Whether this was done with any particular to intent to make a statement or send a signal regarding uh, the replacement of three laws by one law, I'm not sure. Perhaps John has more information about that. But I think that the, uh, given the time, given the, this period of the so-called truce and the trade war, this is an indication that China wants to move forward and, and on a continuing basis and perhaps somewhat independently of the trade war to open up its markets to foreign investors. Mm. So, John, tell us, uh, our listeners, why does China need a new unified law on foreign investment? Well, I think the most important thing is the level of the playing field. I think the previous three legislations are outdated because they treat those uh, foreign investments as a separate entities, uh, apart from domestic companies. In other words, they're treated very differently. Today, uh, that era is gone now. Uh, China is more and more integrated into the national business community, and we are committed to the WTO decrees, and uh, we like to treat foreign and domestic companies as equals. So I think uh, it's against that background that uh, we are fundamentally changing the legal landscape with respect to foreign investment. Mm. I think it's very important. Mm. And John, so the proposed new foreign investment law says no administrative powers should be used to force technology transfer. So how to make sure that when foreign investors encounter abuse of administrative powers, there are effective legal means available for them to defend their rights? Well, I mean, first of all, the forced technology transfer issue is something that you know, China's already committed to a long time ago. You know, it is when China, several years after China joined WTO, we have already made a commitment that uh, uh, we're not going to do this. But, uh, and of course, uh, during the implementation uh, process, you know, there's still room to be improved upon, especially with respect to local governments, you know, the municipal government, in, uh, city governments, provincial governments. They probably, you know, are indeed engaged in activities like this. And, and the thing is that these things are very, very difficult to, to enforce. But now, of course, we have a, a piece of legislation that uh, entirely outlaw that. So there's a legal basis now for enforcing the law. And I think that's a gigantic step. And I think in the future, when uh, local governments engage in negotiations with foreign companies, and they, they have to keep in mind that this is something they cannot do, absolutely cannot do. So I think uh, from that perspective, that's a, that's a gigantic uh, step uh, towards more of a, a level playing field for both domestic companies and foreign companies. Mm. And Michael, so a lot of stipulations we've seen in this uh, draft law actually address some of uh, American concerns, including stop force technology uh, transfer and enhance the intellectual property protection. So do you think this can be seen as a major breakthrough, perhaps, um, for the current negotiations between the U.S. and China? I believe that this is very helpful. As John indicated, China's central government has long made a commitment to protect intellectual property and has indicated that technology transfers were voluntary in the sense that they were something that might be forced by um, contractual arrangement between companies, but not something that the Chinese government would impose. 
Now we have a law that perhaps more clearly, um, and I think that um, this can be seen as a breakthrough. I also think that its timing is very useful in the context of this this 90-day period in which the U.S. and China will discuss uh, perhaps the removal of barriers and a a lessening of the so-called trade war. My understanding is that um, perhaps there will be face-to-face meetings sometimes, sometime in early January, and and I think that this is helpful. However, from the perspective of U.S. companies and and perhaps also um, some European companies, uh, they probably um, would be more interested in what final kind of decision or or final kind of arrangement can be seen between the two governments. Um, in terms of a particular law, uh, what would be most meaningful is how it is enforced, how it is carried out, how it finds its way through the courts, and so forth in the future. Mm, so, John, who will get benefits from this law when it's uh, adopted? Well, directly, of course, the foreign companies will stand to benefit a lot from this, you know, making market access a lot easier. As a matter of fact, not just with respect to force technology transfer itself alone. And there are other things, for example, uh, when it comes to government procurement, so there should be no distinction between foreign companies and domestic companies. Uh, when it comes to uh, standard setting, there should be no difference with respect to the two kinds of companies and a whole bunch of other issues. So, you know, obviously the Chinese com- uh, foreign companies stand to uh, benefit directly. But I think over the long run, you know, the China's economy will also, uh, people's welfare will also stand to benefit as well. That's you know, at the bottom line is that measures like this, uh, granting foreign companies the national stand- status, uh, would improve competition in the domestic market. And, you know, improving competition is always good for consumers. So I think uh, that would make domestic companies more competitive, more efficient. Uh, so I think over the long run, it should be a win-win situation for everyone, including mm. Uh, you know, foreign companies as well as uh, Chinese companies as well as Chinese uh, consumers. Mm. And Michael, so let's talk about the impact on foreign direct investment. If I'm not mistaken, I remember that uh, internationally, the foreign direct investment was on a decline in the year of 2018. But on the contrary, China has seen an increase. So far, the uh, FDI uh, environment in China is rather healthy. So will this you know, uh, draft law get another boost when uh, when it's adopted? I think that overall this year, if we look at calendar year, um, year to date, uh, 2018, um, that there has been an increase in um, inbound foreign direct investment for China. But on the whole, it, it, it's somewhat modest. It, it may be very close to 1% or something on that order of magnitude because uh, there was a sharp reduction in November. Um, which I think some analysts have attributed to the uncertainties around the trade war. So yes, China has um, the trade war has not um, has not had a, a a substantial massive impact on foreign direct investment at least as, as measured at this point in time. Um, so I think that um, the environment is healthy, and and in terms of a boost, um, given that this law will will have to go undergo several readings and will not be uh, put in force until approximately a year from now, perhaps. Um, I'm not sure that um, it will have an immediate impact, but I think in terms of the of the underlying providing an underlying framework uh, for further discussions with the United States and the European Union, it's very helpful and it will provide confidence for businesses. Mm, so, John, do you agree with uh, uh, Michael? And uh, what's the general picture? Do you think is of China's uh, foreign direct investment this year? What are foreign investors' key concerns, or what factors will they take into considerations when they make the decision? Um, yeah, no, I totally concur with uh, what Michael just said. Mm. I think um, you know overall the China market is still quite attractive. I mean, we are the world's uh, largest consumer market. So we're also the world's largest economy in terms of power parity calculation. And the uh, overall uh, investment environment, uh, I think it's getting uh, improved improved a lot over the years. Um, and, and the purchasing power of Chinese consumers is, is just, uh, you know, it's very powerful. Uh, so I think the uh, foreign companies can still make a lot of money here in this market. Uh, and uh, in addition to uh, selling stuff here, uh, you know, Chinese workforce, engineering force, uh, talents here, uh, the uh, R&D resources here are still very attractive 
Um, so I think I'm pretty believe I'm pretty convinced that uh, China still you know represents a very attractive and competitive market for many years to come. Um, you know, of course, some lower end manufacturing is finding more and more difficult to survive these days here in China. But overall, you know, the economy gets upgraded and, and our the consumption patterns also get upgraded. I think there are a lot of opportunities to come. That's John Gone with University of International Business and Economics and Michael Powers with Tsinghua University speaking with my colleague Zhao Yan. Now let's move on to our other news segment. Joining us now is Patrick Flannery. Zhao Yang, while Santa Claus was away from the North Pole this week, one man did something pretty naughty. Armed bank robbery. Police say it's the first time such a crime has ever happened near the North Pole. As the local newspaper put it, the heist was the first ever bank robbery in living memory. The accused man is a foreigner and by his actions did not appear to understand the geography of the area. Well, where exactly did this happen? It happened on an archipelago in the Arctic Ocean, so you've got nowhere to run. Uh, A place called Svalbard between Norway and the North Pole. It's an area where the polar bears outnumber the people. Just about 2,000 people live in this part of the world. Maybe that's what made the man so easy to catch. And Sky News had a great headline for this story. It was simply, Freeze. Yeah, what do we know about this alleged armed robber? I'm really curious. Well, very little, only that he's a foreign national who was traveling and visiting the area, and he had a gun and seized a lot of money from the bank, but police declined to say how much. They said they did not want to release any details about him, his name, the kind of gun he used, only that he did not hurt anyone at the bank. Mm -hmm. So were people scared? Well, they were more amused than scared. Uh, A lot of people on social media joked that, the robber failed to plan his escape. Uh, another person called it the most reckless bank robbery in Norwegian history. Okay, let's move on to our next topic. But let's talk about another kind of robbery, uh, the robbing of someone's trust around the holidays. More people are becoming victims of fraud when it comes to the form of giving known as crowdfunding. It's a way to donate to those in need through an online platform like GoFundMe. And it was one of GoFundMe's viral campaigns that was recently exposed as a scam the company is now having to pay out hundreds of thousands of dollars in refunds to donors who put their trust and their money into what turned out to be a lie. So which campaign was this and how many people were cheated out of their donations? This one involved someone posing as a homeless veteran and it touched the hearts of so many people throughout the, the world. Story goes like this. A New Jersey couple finds itself stranded on the side of the road in Philadelphia, ran out of gas, Homeless veteran comes up, gives them his last $20 to buy gas for the car, and a picture of the three people goes viral. They raise about a half million dollars to help this supposed homeless man uh, find find a place to live. Last month, uh, the whole thing came down. They were exposed. The couple and the man posing as a homeless man were all charged with a crime known as theft by deception, and they deceived about 14,000 people at last count. Well, how did investigators discover that the campaign was a hoax? Through text messages. They dug into about 70,000 texts and came across one that read, this is the quote, The gas part is completely made up. I had to make something up to make people feel bad. Well, how can people avoid being scammed when it comes to crowdfunding? Well, the first thing to do is do your homework, check them out, and sometimes you can't do that when we're talking about a, a campaign that is just you're helping someone in need. You're not helping an organization. So CNBC reported that this level of fraud is pretty rare. We're talking less than 1% of all campaigns, but it does happen. And where it gets really interesting is a study recently found that of 200 GoFundMe campaigns that involved fundraisers for medicine, 90% of them never met their goal. And also go back to the story. Any idea how did they go to do with that money? They bought a BMW. And in their words, we hit the casinos. Okay, thank you, Patrick. (laughs) That's all the time we have for this edition of today. To listen to this episode again or catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World News Analysis. The program engineer of this episode is Zhang Yan. I'm Zhao Ying. Thank you so much for listening.